Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zorja. I'm with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and I'm joined by my friends. Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute and... Dali Borohash, also with AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, it's just us, um, and we want to offer an update on what is going on. It looks like we're entering a new phase of the war, and we're trying to make sense of that in both military terms. So we're going to talk about the Kherson counteroffensive, um, with all credit to Giselle in a second. And then we're going to move slowly west to talk about espionage and sabotage and um, everything that has been going on over the last few days um, and how that builds into, into the war as we're looking at it in the beginning of August. So turning to you, Giselle, on Herson, everybody's been following. We've been asking for a tactical analysis, um, but in the end, it looks like um, you're the best one to offer that. I know you followed it in detail. Can you help us make sense of where we are and where we're heading? Well, I don't know if I can quite solve the puzzle, and, and I hope we can have a, a, a conversation, and it'd be great, actually, if our listeners would sort of double-check me on this. But you're, you're quite right, and I think where we should start is to talk about what this means strategically and politically. It has been long hoped for, long advertised, actually. Uh, many supporters and analysts in the West have long predicted the culmination, so-called, of the... Uh, Russian invasion, and that's clearly happened. The Russians are conducting very, very, you know, diminishingly small local attacks uh, in the Donbass, uh, along with their sort of terroristic missile and rocket strikes. Uh, so we're at the point where it seemed like the pendulum is going to shift in favor of the Ukrainians. So again, I think it's worth talking about sort of how important this is to the cause, and I'm, I'm sure we Y'all have uh, opinions on this. It's it's important, I think, for Ukraine to show that it can be successful in this way to uh, convince people across Europe and in the United States that they have both the dedication and the capability to win back their territory. Um, we've seen uh, uh, Russia beginning to uh, squeeze uh, energy supplies across Europe even further, hoping that, that the Europeans will, will lose heart. And so I think it, the ball, to a certain degree, uh, is in the court of the Ukrainians to demonstrate that they can win. I mean, that would be a really critical message to sustain support for the Ukrainian cause. That also means that if it is not perceived to be a smashing success, that that may damage the Ukrainian cause. So it's probably a good idea to try to define expectations realistically, uh, which I'm happy to sort of uh, chart out a little bit, but I'd be interested in how you guys see the sort of larger strategic and political framework of this campaign, which is sort of started, but 
in a low key way. We're, we're still, I think, in the preparation of the battlefield front, so to speak. You know, I have more questions than answers, but I think what I was alluding to, I've heard this from British generals and, and beyond that this is the next phase, and it does make sense to me. But it seems like before we move to the kind of political level, it seems to me that we are very much in the unknown militarily because um, there's so many factors um, that that weigh into a possible outcome of this new phase. And it's really built into what we are giving the Ukrainians, particularly the super advertised, these super advertised attacks, successful attacks, assessed as such by the United States as well, most recently from um, with the help of HIMARS. And, and what the Russians are still able to throw into the game. And I've seen over the last 24 hours that the Russians are shifting military into the Donbass. Um, and so this this kind of ratio relationship between the Donbass and uh, the front in the south, her son, um, seems to be relatively unclear. I don't understand what they're doing, and I don't understand how effective this could be. Well, so what we're seeing is an asymmetry between what the Russians think will be will work for them and what the Ukrainians value. Yes, uh, ever since the the break in the initial invasion and the withdrawal from Kiev and Kharkiv, the Russians have bet heavily on the Donbass. And they did make some progress there, uh, basically securing all of Luhansk, preparatory to installing a more official puppet government or a more puppet official government, however you want to look at that. Uh, to sort of make a traditional uh, right of conquest uh, claim on the uh, on the oblast, and they shifted people away from the south, and of course they've had a really hard time regenerating forces more broadly. So they've been moving their pieces rather slowly and incrementally around the chessboard, whereas the the Ukrainians you know, at the end of the day, we're willing to just try to exact the highest price possible uh, to give up the last slices of Luhansk, reposition in deeper defensive uh, works on the on the uh, eastern, eastern front, while saving some of their uh, schlitz for uh, this uh, counter-offensive in the south, and particularly to retake Kherson, the key port uh, for Black Sea shipping. And I don't know, you know, who knows what the Russian decision making was here. Was this just the best of bad choices? Because if they continued to spread their forces across the full uh, range, you know, the basically more than 180 degree arc of their initial offensive, they faced a real prospect of a catastrophic collapse because each uh, you know point on the compass would have been vulnerable. Apropos of the HIMAR strikes, we've seen a lot of those being targeted, not so much in the Donbass, but uh, some of the most spectacular explosions have been on uh, river crossing or uh, ammo dumps that are relevant to the defense of Kherson. And of course, they've cratered the, uh, the principal bridge across the Dnipro uh, right to the sort of northeast of the city, which would be the only way uh, for the Russians to resupply. And there are enough holes in it now that it is not sustainable for heavy combat vehicles or heavy vehicles to go across. So they've you know, been conducting basically a campaign to isolate 
the city, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, and et cetera. They've also themselves uh, seized a crossing, uh, the Ukrainians, I mean, uh, somewhat uh, upriver from the, the city. I mean, sort of it, too far upriver to immediately affect operations um, or, or resupply operations in any initial um, uh, move on the city, but very useful for follow-on operations. The, the thing that people should try to hold in their mind is that Harrison sits on the west bank of the river, just before the river gets very marshy and flows into the sea, and where it's very broad, um, uh, sort of upstream, as it were. So um, it, it is naturally isolated from the east. There, uh, like I say, there are very few crossing points. Uh, the Russians have built some pontoon bridges, but that's not enough to really conduct a military supply. Um, and the, the size of the Russian force in and around the city is a little uh, unclear, but it's not very strong. Uh, I've heard figures like 10 battalion tactical groups, which is no longer really a meaningful uh, designation. So, you know, maybe with support troops that are on the west bank of the river and in and around the city, you know, if there are 10,000 Russian soldiers there, I, I think that's got to be close to about the the maximum force they could bring to bear. And, of course, they have to control a hostile local public, uh, populace. Um, there have been um, irregular warfare uh, attacks uh, in and around the city. So the Russians are looking over the shoulder as well as looking over the horizon and contemplating uh, a Ukrainian advance. And if you just give me another minute or two, I think this is where the questions come in. The road network east of the city centers on just a couple of large-scale highways. The terrain is re- seems to be relatively open, but as we've already seen earlier in the war, you know, that doesn't, again, I think we should ha- have long lost this picture of fleets of vehicles moving across fields of wheat, <laughs> you know, uh, World War II style. Yeah. And we really don't know for certain what Ukrainian, you know, armored mounted capabilities that had, they haven't had to do that thus far. And it's possible that they may be looking for a more surround and cut off siege uh, of the city and just letting, you know, here's a, an open question. Is it going to be more uh, impactful uh, um, in a sort of public opinion or propaganda way if there's a large scale surrender of Russian forces because they're cut off and starved, the sort of mini Stalingrad kind of thing that's humiliating to the Russian army, humiliating to Putin, but, uh, you know, a propaganda bonanza for, uh, for Zelensky and, you know, will stiffen spines across the West. I don't really know. But it could take some time if you if, if the Ukrainians remain patient, which I think they should do, because while they've gotten some bits and pieces of ex-Warsaw Pact armor and things like that, not clear what that all amounts to in terms of a real combat punch. And the city is the city, okay? The same uh, challenges that, uh, I don't recall the size of Harrison off the top of my head, but it's, it's not, you know, it's not a village. 
We're not talking about, you know, Donbass size towns uh, and a port. And the Ukrainians don't want to just smash everything to smithereens. They want to get the port back up and running as much as, as possible. Long story short, and there, there are many other details that are worth thinking about here. I think it's worth also wondering at this point, if Harrison falls, then what? How, how soon might that happen? Because as important as the objective is, it's only it's objective one out of uh, a number n that we don't, can't be sure on. But so it, it, it would lead to other opportunities in the South uh, that I think the, the Ukrainians would be very interested in. So I, I guess that's one of the questions I have for you, which is, you know, like to what extent would a retaking of Kherson open up those opportunities? Because it strikes me that, you know, the sort of the geography that you described yes. and, and, and the way that sort of limits Russia's ability to defend Kherson, that, that sort of logic cuts both ways, right? And sort of, you know, bridges are being blown up. Like it's not going to be exactly easy for, for the Ukrainians to move forward. And especially if we get into sort of colder months, it looks like, and yeah, I'm speaking as like somebody who knows nothing about these issues, it looks like sort of the advantage is on the side of, of the one who is defending the territory rather than on the side of the sort of advancing well, this is why I think the the crossing site upriver is is pretty critical. That hasn't gotten much focus. Um, I haven't done research to sort of know how accessible and robust it is. It is on a major highway, so again, sort of in this um, armchair general kind of way, it could be a potential axis for a deeper envelopment because the line to. Mm. Kherson uh, uh, Oblast, which is, you know, on the east side of the river, is is a little bit tenuous for the Russians. It does connect to the so-called land bridge, uh, the Mariupol and points east, and of course there are uh, supply routes uh, heading into Crimea. But but again, those are few. There are already uh, insurgent Ukrainian groups that are operating across that space. Uh, it's a hostile population. <laughs> Let's not forget. So, and, and the Russians don't have the forces to shift easily a blocking force, uh, especially in the a post Kherson. If the Russians can't get all their people out of there and all all their stuff, that's going to be a big blow to their capabilities for for some time. It's a little bit hard to get your arms around this, but you can sort of see a rough shape in the fog, uh, if you will. And at this point, I'm willing to attribute a, a, a sense of patience and wisdom to the Ukrainian senior command that I think they've earned this this far in the war. Just their performance has been uh, really quite good. They have been thinking, yeah, it's funny. It's, it's, it's as though everybody says that Putin is, can be patient and can wait a long time. I, you know, I think that gets it almost directly backwards. It's, it's the Ukrainians who have acted cautiously, patiently, uh, wisely, and the Russians have, you know, botched everything they've touched. And, it, you know, the Russian inability to declare anything that looks like a victory is a problem for them. And and I think you can only attribute it to their miscalculations, which they keep doubling down on and tripling down on. I mean, who wouldn't trade Kherson for, uh, you know, 
Severian Donetsk or something, you know, one of the little places that the, the Russians have, you know, of which there are many. Um, it, you know, it just seems to me that, that, that the Ukrainians have been acting with confidence and patience and the payoff. But then what's the, the yardstick by which they're going to be judged? If they continue to be cautious and patient, I think her son will fall almost inevitably and with relatively fewer casualties and less destruction and all the rest of that. But if you're looking for something that will rouse uh, or, or reinforce weak wills in the West, the, the, the spin on it will become, why haven't they taken her son? How long are they, you know? Well, because that's that's also like an important element of this. The, the way this like you know, Ukrainian patience translates in the West yeah. is that people look at the war and they see something that's sort of like static. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like there, there barely are any updates from the Institute <laughs> for the Study of War these days. Like it's, it's not moving in any. And I say so. People then like it then it no longer occupies the front pages, and it's harder to make the political case for sending more high Mars. <laughs> Forget that's just another thing. Like. The Ukrainians have managed to win the information war by staying out of it. You know, it's like we see, no doubt, there's lots of Ukrainian stuff that's blowing up and casualties and all the rest of that yeah. stuff. All the focus. And of course, ISW does not collect on the good guys. So they're just, their lens is, is focused. So what's happening in the Ukrainian military is is still a little bit mysterious to us, right? Yeah, but but this is, and I think this is a good segue to the strategic, political, mm. and then trying to move a little bit more west, as we promised, is um, I'm afraid, and, and this is something that I don't see talked about much, I'm afraid that this new phase of the war also translates into starting to highlight in the west holes in that clearly exist in um, in the um, social and political issues surrounding Ukraine. There's been now, over the last few days, a flurry of reports of sabotage. Um, I just saw in local media this morning, you know, this big story, and I think this is telling of this um, Kiev school um, director, um, who has sold apparently military secrets to the Russians in the hope that she will be named Minister of Education once Russia takes over. And of course, this is ridiculous, but this is one of many cases that start being visible. It just came out um, or, or became visible in the Western media that the Zelensky government has um, accused over 500 people of treason. This is also linked to the story of how mines were removed from um, the Kherson bridges um, in the early stages of war. And so information warfare starts getting holes into it. For us on, on this side, it's normal, but it doesn't help um, it doesn't help the cause. And so as we're 
looking into these little holes in the in the Ukrainian cheese, as we're looking into Ukraine itself, then it starts getting larger. Um, and we've seen over the last few days, and I think they are connected. Um, we've seen last night, everybody started talking about the Balkans because of this incident um, at the uh, at the border between Kosovo and Serbia. Um, and to me, that's a pattern of Vucic got some orders to um, to help a little bit um, Putin, um, his friend. Um, we've seen last week that horrendous, but again, not new speech of Orban, the other ally of Putin who went to Romania to tell um, to tell the Hungarian minority and his um, and his voters, he does uh, Hungarians should not be ethnically mixed. Um, he meant with Romanians, but he talked about race in a very disgusting way. And so we've seen um, we've seen the effects of that in the region as well again creating new holes in in what already existed on the western front in terms of in terms of um, resistance and information warfare and i think this is the beginning of sort of the end of the honeymoon of this war in terms of information warfare and those who were looking for faults and, uh, I don't know, Western imperialism will have their large choice um, in the weeks and months to come as the Russians are starting to what looks like activating their, um, their operations on Western ground. Um, we've seen yesterday also much less in the media, but a Bulgarian ammunition depot was blown up that apparently is linked in ownership to those in the Czech Republic a few years ago. We've seen a Russian um, now in a European hospital um, apparently uh, poisoned. We've seen reports even in the United States of Russian agents being um, arrested in very much Cold War style. So these are just a few instances. Um, examples or, or cases of what I see as holes already in information warfare um, and holes in, in how the war will continue to be perceived in the weeks and months to come. Well, there, there's a certain man for all seasons quality to the education minister thing where, you know, where Thomas More turns to Richard Rich <laughs> and says, Yes, I understand you sold me out, but my God, for the Ministry of Education, <laughs> that's all you can get out of it. And let's not forget the sort of conservative fellow travelers, particularly in you know in our in our own country. Um, mm. th there is a, <laughs> a Russian bunt, if you will, in the. Uh, which you see coming, you know, this is also the season of uh, conservative ideas conferences. Yep. Um, and let me tell you, if it weren't for trans people, it would be all about Putin <laughs> or Orban. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, so that's, that's whether that's whether. Well, I think it will be really interesting to watch CPAC. Right. Yeah. Uh, when you sort of look at the trends, number of, you know, the sort of freedom caucus, Tea Party 2.0 senators, House members who voted against yeah. mm -hmm. the 40 billion supplemental bill. Many have sort of adopted the sort of restrainer, realist 
attitude towards things. And uh, but but I still think that there is some sort of like people would feel embarrassed to be sort of openly supporting Russia. But but maybe some of those scruples will come off gradually. And our Orban was in in you know in in, in Romania last weekend. He is coming to Dallas. Yeah. Uh, and then his government really has made no, they have made no apologies for... Not at all, on the contrary. And the, the people in Romania, by the way, who listened, the Hungarians, they applauded frenetically. And when they were asked, like, how come? They said, well, this is normal. So I think we're going to see more of that. And one more thing to throw out there is everybody who's listening and us um, too are going to the grocery store here in the United States and are seeing that the prices are increasing. I don't see anywhere, especially on the right side of things, but, but on the left too, people saying, well, this is because of Putin. The prices are increasing because of the gas crisis that Putin and Russia have created. It's all the war in Ukraine. It's Biden. It's this. It's that. But it's never Russia. And I'm afraid this is one of the biggest holes in on our side of things. We don't publicly recognize that this is all should be blamed on Russia. And then we can adjust our aims and our objectives accordingly, right? It's all something else. It's not, it's Ukraine or it's Biden. It's not Russia. I think Biden called it the Putin tax for for a while, but that didn't really take off. You know, our economist friends don't necessarily help this, uh, you know, this contributing facts to the argument is really gets in the way of good information warfare. By the way, can we banish that term from the podcast? Can we talk just talk about good old propaganda? Just because it's delivered on the internet uh, doesn't mean that it's not propaganda. Let's call a spade a spade here. I'm sorry, that's just a personal quirk. But it, to, to bring this, the the circle back a little bit, the Ukrainians know this as well as we do, and so you wonder whether they can maintain their cool, you know, and not say, "Hey, you know, we need a victory." That's seen as a victory in the West and in America to shut, and especially in America, because that's where the weapons come from. Okay, you know, looking past the fall elections to the next tranche of uh, arms requests and giving them stuff that'll really piss Putin off. Okay, I mean, it's it doesn't it's not going to get any easier in terms of, uh, you know, the self deterrence equation on the arms packages, you know, and so much of this is just such like, who's, who's going to be the winner? You know, this is like a, a playground fight and who's going to win uh, because that's the appeal of Putin to Josh Hawley and the manliness crowd. Well, he has to be winning for that appeal to sort of exist. Right. They, as we said earlier, the Ukrainians are fighting an internal war too to purge themselves of corruption and, uh, you know, turncoat mm-hmm. government ministers and so on. So, that, so they have a, you know, a fifth column that they're battling as much as they're battling the Russian army. And can you really blame them? Because, you know, it's just eight years since 2014. Yeah. So Zelensky has to get out of bed every day, you know, probably knows where most of the bodies are buried. And he's like, can I afford to get rid of this guy or this person? And how will that affect my domestic political standing and what's his power base <laughs> and what was that thing about the russians <laughs> yeah. you know he's, he's got to look over his shoulder as well as in front 
So um, after the quick, you know, rant or tour de force of uh, Balkans and Bulgaria and Romania and whatever is happening in the region, Hungary, we cannot really finish this episode uh, among us without some Germany. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm turning to Dalibor. <laughs> oh, you prom- you promised me some Ireland too. So Dalibor. Yes, let's look yeah. at Western Europe because that always looks darker. <laughs> Compared to everything else, <laughs> so I have a few things on 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 sort of my my, my list. Um, one is yes, we mentioned the Putin admirers in among the ranks of American conservatives and Western conservatives and sort of right wing populists more 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 broadly. But there is also another group which is equally, I think, problematic from from the perspective of of helping Ukraine succeed in this war, and that's the you know bien pensant left of center. Peaceniks across across the Western world, and you know, I I'm actually sort of on aesthetic grounds. I'm in love with President Higgins of Ireland. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm convinced that he's a hobbit, and 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 I you know love his sort of penchant for for for, for, for and poetry dog. and everything. Uh, I still prefer Nordic prime ministers myself. <laughs> I, I don't think I would agree with him very much on on on, on sort of questions of geopolitics. Obviously, Ireland has this long-standing tradition of, of neutrality and staying out of conflicts, which they haven't abandoned in this war, although Ireland is at the same time part of the EU, so they have signed off all the of the sanctions packages in the past. But, but the sort of newsworthy piece of information is that Mrs. Higgins, um, the president's wife, uh, wrote a letter to the Irish Times denouncing an opinion piece they they had published earlier and she essentially called for you know both sides to come to the negotiating table and 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 called for a for a sort of peace settlement and that that letter of hers got um then published on the official website of 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 the office of the president of ireland that then got deleted from 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 that website it also sort of raised questions about whether that was the official position of 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 the presidency or not? Apparently, it wasn't. But but I think that's it. It is somewhat sort of illustrative illustrative of of of, of the sort of entropy that sets in once you don't really have news coming from Ukraine, especially news of of, of Ukrainians turning the tide against the Russians. Because yes, then people, especially you know the well-meaning center-left folks, they they get tired. They sort of see the suffering, and they say, well, why can't we just bring this to an end somehow? And 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 I think we'll see more and more of that. Which will go hand in hand with, uh, obviously, the more sort of immediate material considerations. So, so which brings me to Germany. So, you know, the price of natural gas in Germany is what like five times what it was last year. The um, Nord Stream One is operating at twenty percent of capacity. You know, Russian shenanigans. In spite of the Canadian turbine being replaced, <laughs> etc., they 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 essentially are trying to blackmail Germans into sort of serving as 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 their fifth column and and, and sort of exercising pressure on 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 on, on Ukrainians in, in 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 the coming months. And so I had a piece last week in the British press in the Telegraph because I mean the Brits always like you know a good, good sort of German <laughs> bashing. Uh, so 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 I did this piece on this natural gas question. So so okay, like we understand why the Germans don't want to do this all at once. I mean, it you know it really hurts. Uh, natural gas is one quarter of Germany's energy consumption. One third of it comes from Russia. Uh, just just cutting it from one day to the next 
would be would be indeed painful and we are already sort of starting from a pretty bad baseline but 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 you actually need to do it at once was was the sort of argument of of, of my piece for the same reason why you know economic reforms in eastern europe had to be done in one piece and quickly you know by people like balcerovich in poland and elsewhere right you needed the sort of shock therapy and and, and, and these sort of irreversible decisions, you know, for the same reason why Alexander the Great burned his ships when he arrived in, in Persia. You just have to sort of signal credible commitment, if you, if you will. And, uh, you know, as long as, you know, G- Germans keep these pipelines around and, and, and as long as capacity is simply reduced, as, as long as they say, well, we are going to wean ourselves off Russian gas gradually. And, and, and you know, here is the timetable for that. They, they are just not going to be believed by anybody in Europe, uh, especially given the history uh, of, of, of the past two decades especially given where Scholz is on, you know, arms supplies. And, and, and so I think that like if, you know, if they want to regain credibility, they have to have a sort of, you know, energy sector shock therapy. And, and actually a good piece, on, a piece of news on that is that I think they can pull it off. Like they, you know, like if, if, if they if, if sort of overcome this aversion, the nuclear power, yeah. we, we, we heard um, the head of um, Joachim Bühler, the head of TUVV, um, the sort of what is it like safety certification agency saying that that you, they they can actually keep all these nuclear plants that are currently in operation, plus the three that they shut down in December, like they can keep them in operation indefinitely uh, without any sort of safety risks involved. Like there is like whatever arguments the government presented for phasing those those out have been just purely political. Like there there is no sort of like safety concern or sort of substantive reason to to phase those out that that was just a that was just a sort of political decision so, so i think that that all needs to be done uh and and that would have i think an impact on 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 the russian economy too which is just far less resilient than meets the eye so so the third thing we should probably in, include in the in the show notes is is the um yale yes. uh, school of management study on, on sanctions which shows that you had what like thousand international companies leaving russia uh which account like in terms of the capitalization for 40 percent of russian gdp which does not amount to a sort of slump of Russian GDP by forty percent, but it's 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 a really big outflow of capital and of sort of wealth They're from Russia. They're not even producing any cars anymore. The report shows, and, yeah. and it's not just it's not about sort of like the capital and the money, but it's about also like these the, you know these are companies that have been at the technological frontier. Mm-hmm. right? And and so once they go, once the IP goes, uh, then Russians have to. Yeah, they can start producing these sort of 1980s style ladas again, and 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 they can like you know drill the oil like they did it like in in Soviet times, right? Like they won't be able to like use BP and right. Shell and 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 you know yard Exxon technology to do it, and 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 and, and so, so so there is a really like an opportunity to reduce Russia to the upper Volta with nukes. <laughs> And and I think the Germans should seize it. End of rant. Unless there is like a veto, I think I have a frame to wrap this whole um, thing up because I think I found a thread. Um, Orban talked about it. <laughs> um, uh, Olaf Scholz uh, talked about it uh, when he said 
um, I think it was a few days ago on a, on a um, uh, German TV show um, next to the foreign minister who um, tried to ha keep a poker face but did, did not manage to her credit. He said, you know, it's not the Ameri uh, it's not like the Americans believe that when you look at the whole mix of German energy, we're not as dependent on Russia as the Americans are saying. Orban, when he um, was in Romania and did his um, horrendous speech, talked about the Anglo-Saxon war. And the Irish um, uh, misses and, and all of that, that kind of builds into, into that um, issue with sometimes Anglo, sometimes Saxon. But, but there seems to be a thread of Russian information warfare or propaganda or whatever you want to call it that um, reunites the left and right um, into this um, into this um, attacking of this is Anglo-Saxon imperialism, Anglo-Saxon warfare, support of Ukraine and all of that. So I think this is kind of the the thread um, that that unifies Irish and German and some of the, the the conservatives here, isn't it? First of all, you know, getting the Irish riled up is a very low bar, okay? <laughs> I mean, this is why the Donnellys immigrated from Ulster to America. <laughs> uh, because, but you're quite right. There is sort of deep, you know, to, to make it sound more intellectual than it is, a deep historical uh, anger at Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-American imperialism, which in many cases is a cover story for the failings of the people themselves. But yeah, it persists. I mean, Yulia, with rhetoric like that, you can be elected to the European Parliament uh, you know, from, from Dublin. Nobody will be able to tell the difference. <laughs> you, you put on that... Uh, costume with great panache <laughs> well for the record i'm a supporter of anglo-saxon imperialism and if the black sea um <laughs> if the black sea you know would become at least part of it colonized i think people will go to the streets and cheer um and it's been like that in in uh, on the eastern on the actual eastern front for a long long time so um, maybe the last thing I'll say, I remember about a week ago, I was in a conversation with Nora Breedlove and someone interviewing both of us. And someone was asking the question, but what about, you know, Russian, um, Russian kind of pretensions on the region? Um, what about Anglo-Saxon bashing of the Russians or Soviets over time? And I said, um, and this is a point I make again and again. Yeah, what about the 150 million Eastern Europeans who, against their will, all of that through the last few decades, and now so many people are actually rooting for Anglo-Saxon victory <laughs> and Ukraine. So, um, so you know, if you ask me and many others, um, maybe it's not in fashion to say, but better under American um, uh, empire than under Russia. Anglo-Saxon imperialism is the best thing that ever happened to Western Europe. And 
Now we can let the Eastern Europeans in on it. There you go. So I think this is our cue to wrap up. Um, from me, Julia, Georgia, and my friends. Giselle Donnelly and Dalbur Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. If you enjoyed this episode, as always, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.